This is The Guardian. Sue Gray's update uncovers more lockdown leaving dues as the pressure piles on for the Prime Minister to come clean about Covid rule-breaking parties, which Scotland Yard is now investigating. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. The Prime Minister repeatedly assured the House that the guidance was followed and the rules were followed. But we now know that 12 cases have reached the threshold for criminal investigation. Expectations were high when Sue Gray finally released what she could of her report into lockdown parties in Downing Street on Monday. But Boris Johnson was at pains to tell MPs that they now have to wait until the Met Police finished their criminal investigation into what exactly took place and who should be fined. This, this leader of the opposition, a former director of public prosecutions, Mr Speaker, he spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out, Mr Speaker. There were some wild accusations about Jimmy Savile and name-calling, followed by Tory backbenchers demanding that the full report be published soon. All the while, we uncovered more boozy send-offs at number 10. So what's next in this shameful saga? Uh, As we stand here, uh, Volodymyr, uh, today more than 100,000 Russian troops are gathering on your border in perhaps the biggest demonstration of hostility towards Ukraine in our lifetime. On Tuesday, Johnson left one domestic crisis behind at home and headed to Ukraine to try and help out there. Johnson and Putin were expected to have a phone call later on Wednesday, but not without the Kremlin first calling Johnson utterly confused. So has the UK government overestimated its position as a diplomatic player? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. The government will be hoping that its new white paper on levelling up will do the trick in distracting the public from the latest revelations about shindigs the Prime Minister attended. To see if this long-awaited plan to address regional inequality in the UK will succeed in shifting the debate away from the parties, I spoke to The Guardian's political correspondent, Peter Walker. Now, Peter was in Westminster when we spoke, so you may hear some background noise here and there. Well, Peter, it's lovely to have you on. Let's start with the news of the day, which is levelling up. Michael Gove is doing his bit to help potentially distract us from those parties at Downing Street with his new levelling up white paper, uh, which we've been waiting for for a while. So can you tell us exactly what it said in there that was new? I mean, what's new in it is going to be one of those things where people have to look through it and kind of check. There's a lot of aspirations. One of the key things in the trail they released in advance of the white paper is these 12 things which are very modestly termed national missions which cover everything from investment to education to growth to all those sorts of things and they're all done with targets to be done by 2030 but if you actually kind of read through what these missions are then the specifics of the targets are quite vague it's to you know make sure that in things like healthy life expectancy and uh, education that the worse off areas catch up with the best ones but it doesn't really say by how much so it's a sort of thing that even a kind of fairly modest change over the next you know five six years could actually do it 
so this is going to be one of those stories where what it actually means, and particularly in terms of devolution and mayors, is going to be very much in the small print. And it sounds like there's going to be a lot of that. And The Guardian did some analysis on this plan, which shows that some of the most wealthy areas of England will see 10 times more funding than the poorest, which doesn't exactly sound like levelling up, does it, Peter? This is a levelling up funding that's been introduced so far, because this is a white paper. It's not really expected to say any details of you know, which area is going to get what money for, for what. And the other thing, obviously, is it looks very much with levelling up white paper. There's not a whole load of new cash the plans announced over the weekend, the first preview of these, was basically a rehash of money that had already been talked about. The Guardian analysis is very interesting because it does show that basically if your area is represented by a Conservative MP, a minister in particular, then your chances of getting money from these various funds, and there's a lot of funds, are quite good. And it's a strange one. There's been lots of talk about this in the past. And one of the kind of odd things is that Labour don't really necessarily want to talk about this because... It implies that if you vote in a Tory MP, then your town centre is going to get, you know, a new cinema or a swimming pool or stuff like that, which is which is quite blatant. But in some ways, it's quite a resonant message, which is why I guess pork barrel politics as this is, has been you know, used over many, many years. And now that we've got these uh, these so-called missions, um, how is the government holding itself to account on actually carrying them out? Well, this again is going to be something that's going to be buried somewhere within the white paper when we do see it. And one of the complicated things is that levelling up is obviously this incredibly kind of nuanced thing. It depends on what you see as kind of opportunities, what you see as providing chances to people all the way around the country. And one of the difficulties is that even with the 12 national missions is that some of them are so vague. One of them is about how people take pride in their town centre. And, and that's a very kind of subjective thing. I guess it can be measured by kind of polling. But a lot of it is going to be quite difficult to, to, to pin down. So expect a lot of arguments over whether or not they've actually been met, because, you know, in many ways, it's going to be something people can argue in both ways. Now, we've just watched Prime Minister's questions in the House of Commons, and it was actually quite different from the last few weeks, which were dominated by Partygate, um, the Downing Street Party scandal. And this time, Labour decided to focus on tax increases. Why do you think they've done that? This week's Prime Minister's questions was quite an interesting one because, I mean, you're right, Partygate didn't really come up that much. There were a couple of jokes about it. This was very much, I think, Labour bringing out what's going to be a more kind of election-ready message. Starmer's key takeaway to anyone watching was the argument that Boris Johnson is presiding over a government that has to raise taxes. Mr Speaker, it's not just the national insurance rise. Thresholds for income tax, frozen. A stealth tax on working people. The threshold for tuition fees, frozen. A stealth tax on working people. Because the tax revenues from growth are not as good as they uh, could be. And it is certainly true that in the last 10 or so years, then the UK's growth rate has been not, you know, particularly great. You know, and it is quite interesting, a Labour Party telling a Conservative Party that it's increasing taxes by, you know, a bit too much. But this is something that voters like. And it's also something which is very much a message to the Conservative MPs in the uh, chamber, too, because there's a lot of Tories that don't like the national insurance rights, which is about to come in. And they don't like this idea that, you know, Johnson is seemingly a high tax PM. Keir Starmer still got a few jokes in about uh, Partygate, though, didn't he? And do you think that they hit hard and uh, knock Johnson's confidence in the chamber? Yes, there were a couple of times when Johnson's answers were particularly waffly and long. And Starmer said things along the lines of, you know, when the police interview you, you your answers are going to have to be, you know, better than that. Were 
word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. (laughs) Which seemed to silence the louder Tory MPs for a bit. But I think it's an interesting point to make that for all Johnson can talk about taxation and spending and the government records and stuff like that, there is this sword you know, directly over him, which is the idea that in a matter of weeks or even days, the police might be interviewing him for uh, uh, alleged crimes. And this is, for a serving Prime Minister, almost unprecedented stuff, really. Keir Starmer also brought up the huge wastage in PPE supplies that the government has presided over. Under this government, we've seen a pandemic of waste and fraud. From the Prime Minister's yacht to government contracts for mates of ministers, they've treated taxpayers as an ATM machine for their mates and their lifestyle. And then Johnson tried to hit back by waving around a letter from um, from the Labour Party chair, Annalise Dodds, claiming that uh, Labour would have, would have wasted uh, money on PPE as well. Can you just explain what was going on there? It was a slightly strange one because, um, you know, usually when a PM or an opposition leader waves a letter, then they've got something good. But this was um, a letter sent early during COVID when uh, Annalise Dodds, who would have been the shadow chancellor at the time, was suggesting to someone in government that one way to get PPE during the period when PPE was incredibly hard to get was to get it from a uh, supplier of theatre goods. And Johnson all thought that was, you know, seemed to indicate that was a completely crazy thing to do and that, you know, Labour would have probably wasted a lot of money too. And to an extent, it's almost a fair point that there was this real panic buying when the pandemic was at its early period. Um, But it was a bit of a complicated point, so I don't think it landed particularly well. Talking of letters, where are we with these letters of no confidence going in from Tory MPs um, saying that they no longer support Boris Johnson? It feels like there's a sort of drip drip of of more and more coming since the Sue Gray report, doesn't it? It does. There's been a handful which have come in. But in terms of confirmed numbers, it's probably fewer than 10 in terms of people who've actively stood up and told someone I've submitted a uh, letter. And as we found out during the Theresa May era, there's a lot of predictions about how close we are to the 54 letters, you know, which are needed to spark a leadership challenge. And apart from Graham Brady, no one actually knows. It's it's a really, really tricky one to gauge because we might only be at, you know, 8, 9, 10 or something like that, in which case the trickle would have to go on for a long time to reach a magic number. But because nobody knows, and lots of Tory MPs tend to not necessarily say when they do it, we could be, I guess, at anywhere from about eight to about, I don't know, 30 plus. Now, we're two days on from having seen Sue Gray's findings so far on the lockdown parties, which allegedly took place in Downing Street. And there's now a criminal investigation. But Peter, what were your main takeaways from what she was able to say in her report, albeit a limited one? I guess there were a couple of main things, one of which was even though this was a very, very much eviscerated and edited report compared to what you wanted to put in, it was only 12 pages and there was pretty much no details about specifics of parties. It was still quite damning. It condemned the lack of leadership. It basically said, number 10, it's a serious kind of booze culture problem. It also just listed the sheer number of parties. The fact the police are investigating 12 alleged uh, events, some of which took place on the same dates. That is a lot. And we didn't know up to that point how many of the police were looking into. But the other thing too is that Sue Gray made it very, very plain that this was not the report that she wanted to put out and she said she's got a lot more information which is basically 
locked up in a digital safe, which has been very, very carefully guarded until the police investigation is over. So that was the other clear message that this is not it. Boris Johnson, at some point in the future, faces a very, very big reckoning from Gray. Now, we did some digging into some of the events mentioned in the Sue Gray uh, report that we hadn't known about previously. And it seems that there wasn't actually a time of year that the PM or those around him weren't having some of these gatherings, doesn't it? Can you tell us any more about this uh, latest report we had about uh, the Prosecco party in January? So, yes, this was one of the um, incidents that the Grey report mentioned that we didn't know anything about. And Grey just said it was the departure of two private secretaries from uh, Number 10. But it's turned out that there was what was described as a prosecco fueled leaving do. And one of the people was um, a senior policy advisor who now works for the Department for Digital Culture, Media and uh, Sport. This is yet another one at which Johnson was supposed to have been there, gave a leaving speech, etc., etc., as more details come out, again, this is quite difficult too, that in the sense that, 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 you know, we've barely got any details about the parties and the more information comes out, the more it does seem that Johnson if, is not there at every single one, but he didn't have to be persuaded very uh, hard to turn up in a crowded room and give a uh, leaving speech. Now, Johnson has for uh, some weeks now been telling everybody in the House of Commons that after waiting for the Grey report, we'll now have to wait for the Met Police to finish their investigation uh, before he can really do anything or, or publish the the full and unredacted uh, Grey investigation, which now apparently has more than 300 photographs of various parties that took place, including CCTV footage. Now, Peter, not to say you do anything ever illegal, but would you be quick to take photos of uh, of a party if you did. Do you know what? If it was a work one and I knew for certain it was lockdown busting, I probably wouldn't. But I think if there are indeed a lot of photos of, you know, metaphorically showing people kind of dancing on tables, you know, swigging drinks and things like that, if they were taken and have been passed on to Grey, I think it shows either there was this culture of people just not realising or not caring precisely what they were doing or perhaps... It was perhaps people covering their own backs, you know, maybe more junior staff thinking, let me take a photo of you know, the state of chaos that is going on. Because one of the things the Grey Report did say was that there appears to be within number 10 a sense in which some staff did have worries about what was going on, but didn't feel they could complain to anyone. So maybe some of these were people covering their backs and doing this and were happy to pass them on to Sue Grey. But again, we're going to find out the full context of this when, eventually when, the full Grey Report does come out. And it's always a guessing game to figure out uh, which Boris Johnson is going to turn up to the dispatch box these days. Is it going to be Mr. Apologetic and contrite or defensive or at points really uh, on the offensive and, and quite outrageous, like on Monday um, when he uh, made these comments about Keir Starmer supposedly and falsely fail having failed to prosecute the serial sex offender Jimmy Savile when he was the former director of public prosecutions. And there's something quite odd, isn't there, Peter, about the leader of the SNP in Westminster, Ian Blackford, being chucked out of the House of Commons for having called the Prime Minister a liar, but the Prime Minister himself being allowed to say these demonstrably incorrect uh, slurs, really, about Keir Starmer, but that being ruled in order by the Speaker. What does it say about uh, the, the rules of Parliament, what you're allowed to get away with in political discourse? It's an interesting one. It's this kind of mini constitutional test that we do have this very, very long-standing um, convention that MPs don't accuse each other of dishonesty in the chamber. And it was based on this idea that MPs were essentially honourable people. So you do occasionally have opposition people like Ian Blackford 
staging a slightly theatrical intervention where they know they're going to be kicked out of the commons or, you know, will uh, have to leave, but say it just because it makes for a good TV clip. And it also makes a point too. Um, the speaker is not particularly keen on it. He rebuked Boris Johnson in slightly coded terms for saying what he said, for saying these untrue things. And at the start of Prime Minister's questions, the, the speaker was basically responding to concerns about MPs. He made this statement at the start, kind of saying, look, I don't set the rules. It is important to stress context. Similar words said in different proceedings might attract a different response from the chair, depending on the subject being debated, tone and other considerations. But in general, the chair will not tolerate accusations of lying or deliberately misleading the House. If you're worried that this convention about not calling other MPs a liar has reached the end of the road, then it's not for me to do anything about it. It's for, you know, up to MPs to actually change the rules. And he didn't actually withdraw that remark today in the Commons, did he? Despite some pressure, even from his own Tory MPs, to do so. But I'm informed that in 2013, uh, the Right Honourable Gentleman apologised and took full responsibility uh, for, for what had happened... On, on his watch. And he basically doubled down on it. He used a line that Michael Gove, the community's levelling up secretary, had used in a broadcast round earlier in the day, making the point that as director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer had um, uh, apologised for the fact that prosecutors did not prosecute Savile, you know, when they had the chance. The issue is that that's someone who is the head of an organisation making an apology which you know, taking responsibility for their role. It doesn't mean that Starmer could or should have done more. And what Johnson originally said at Prime Minister's Questions last week was he, he pinned it on Starmer's role, saying Starmer was prosecuting journalists when he should have been doing more about these uh, other things. And this is not only factually untrue and, you know, well disproved. It's kind of a, a kind of meme almost that's, that's become popular on Facebook and other social media, and it's mainly far-right groups which spread it. So it's quite a kind of unsavoury waters in which to be getting into. And apart from apologising again over the parties, Johnson's main um, tactic seems to be promising to improve the civil service and the number 10 working hierarchies. Do you, and does anyone think this could work, or is it just bluster to cover up from the fact that his parties may have broken the law? I think... Anyone in a position like Johnson has two choices, one of which, which some might argue is a more honourable one, is to say, look, there was clearly a rotten culture at number 10, I'm at the top and thus I need to go. But if you decided you want to cling on, then you basically have to say mistakes were made in that classic trying to evade responsibility way. And that's been the issue so far that he's said, yes, there was problems. And he did promise his MPs after the report came out, there would be this kind of wholesale series of changes in number 10. There hasn't actually been anything yet, and it's not necessarily signs that there will be soon. And it's not quite clear where he's going to go on that, because there's going to be a certain number of MPs who will be expecting changes, not just in the staffing at number 10, but also in like policy too. And Johnson, as is something he certainly has done in the past, has made a lot of promises to different people and not always the same ones. So at some point there'll be a reckoning. It all comes down to this idea of Johnson is basically just trying to do whatever is necessary to buy him some time in the hope that something comes up. But the two questions are, you know, how much time can he get and what actually potentially could come up? Peter Walker, as always, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. After the break, we look at how Boris Johnson can influence the Ukraine crisis. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian. Boris Johnson flew out to Ukraine earlier this week to offer his support to the unfolding situation there with Russia. So how much influence does so-called global Britain actually hold? I spoke to The Guardian's Defence and Security Editor, Dan Sabah, to find out more. And I started off by asking him why things are so bad on the Ukraine border right now. I was in Westminster when I spoke to him, so you may once again hear some background noise here and there. What we've seen is a build-up of troops. It started in, in December, uh, uh, something like 100,000 Russian troops arranged sort of near enough to the borders of, of Ukraine. It's the second time, second time in a year, actually, we've seen this kind of threatening activity. But what we've seen gradually over the ensuing weeks is a step-by-step increase in the kind of troop numbers, so spreading the area which Ukraine's got to defend or keep an eye on. Whilst at the same time we've seen, which is a kind of intense sort of set of diplomatic manoeuvres by by the Kremlin, really sort of trying to push out against NATO and NATO expansionism, and in fact, in some respects, almost like rewriting the last 30 years of history. Russia wants Ukraine not to join NATO, and has also made various demands about the West withdrawing troops from, from NATO members that joined, the Eastern European NATO members that joined in the 1990s, sort of thing that's entirely unacceptable to Eastern Europe and to America. And do you think this is the worst the situation has been for a while? It is undeniably the worst the situation has been. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a war or anything like it. There are a few things that people are also watching for. So one of the things that military strategists sort of will will say to you is that the ground freezes over typically in that part of the world in in February, perhaps into March. And that allows Russian tanks much greater manoeuvrability over the terrain. The easiest way, if you really want to capture Kiev, if that is your mindset, the easiest way would be to invade from the north from Belarus across the Pripyat marshes. Now, again, none of this means it's more likely, but we are coming, I think, to a critical point over the next three or four weeks, whether we'll know whether Vladimir Putin is going to do something or not militarily. Now, Boris Johnson has had other things on his plate to deal with recently, and he actually had to bow out of a phone call earlier this week with Russian President Vladimir Putin because of the Sue Gray report into parties in Downing Street. What do you make of UK-Russia relations at this point? The relationship isn't great. You've got to remember the Russians are the masters, you know, of endless one-upmanship in, in diplomatic you know, in diplomatic affairs, they they just sort of make maximus demands and don't give an inch. So, you know, I remember talking to a diplomat who dealt with the foreign secretary with listening on the calls. You know, the Russian counterparts would be obsessed about getting on the line second. They'd always have to make the Western diplomat wait, just wait just a moment and say they weren't on the line. So once a call had been scheduled, the very fact that once the UK tried to move, you know, move it was a little, little, PR advantage for the Kremlin. So, yeah, it doesn't look good for Boris Johnson, but things happen for prime ministers, even even this prime minister that, you know, are unavoidable. So what we're seeing is sort of game playing, not diplomacy. Not a good sign if, if, if you're hoping to de-escalate the crisis, but perhaps not surprising under the circumstances. Now, we've obviously left the European Union and Britain has since then been trying to find a new place on the world stage. Do you think this uh, international crisis is something of a moment where Britain might be able to regain some sort of international reputation for being a leading figure among other world nations? You know, when you leave the EU, I mean, I say this jokingly, that Britain's foreign policy is a bit post-geographic. You know, the further a country away is, like Australia, you know, the more important it seems seems to have become now. 
So there had been, you know, Joe Biden wanted a big focus on China and there had been talk of an Indo-Pacific tilt. Of course, the first crisis comes, you know, on the edge of Europe with Russia. Um, Ukraine's not in the EU. Of course, it's, it, it, it's not in NATO. But interestingly, Britain has been one of the keenest countries to help out Ukraine, not in terms of soldiers and boots on the ground. That, that's not realistic and, and, and would, be da- would be dangerous of Russia were to invade. You know, Britain has been one of the keenest countries to supply arms to Ukraine. Now, that's made us quite popular in Ukraine and has won us friends and supporters over there. Although the reality is, you know, Britain is still a long way from Ukraine and, and, and there is no real practical, you know, if Russia were to invade, there really is nothing that Britain could do outside NATO or, or, or outside the Americans. So we're definitely winning a bit of PR and other countries like Germany have been a lot less willing or not willing at all, really, in the case of Germany, to supply arms. But, but if push comes to shove, I'm not quite sure where our policy is taking us. And that's a bit of a problem. Talking about Britain's response to this crisis, the UK is reportedly considering doubling the amount of troops it has based in Eastern Europe. We have about 900 stationed in Estonia, more than 100 in Ukraine and about 150 in Poland. Do you think, Dan, if war broke out, that we would be prepared? If Russia were to invade Ukraine, we will see rapid troop deployments led by the US, which has put 8,500 troops on standby, troops into Eastern Europe, in the US case, probably into Poland, and in Britain's case, most likely actually again into the Baltic states. I think, you, as you said, there are 900 in, in Estonia at the moment. I mean, this is psychological and a sort of deterrent effect. I mean, these aren't large numbers. I mean, a, a casual glance at the map would tell you that the Baltic states are quite exposed, particularly if Russia is based in, in, in Belarus. But you know, defend, I can see why London believes it's important to try and defend and, and, and deter Russian aggression. I mean, it would be difficult if the pre- if, if Russia tried to sort of step by step escalate things. Although, again, it's sort of hard to imagine that level of escalation because you're comparatively close to a general war. So what are the other things that could be done outside of an on the ground boots and military action style response? I mean, if you ask the Ukrainians what they'd like to see from Britain, I mean, the first thing that diplomats often you know say behind the scenes is, well, we want to be members of NATO. That is just not a runner. There's a war in, you know, low intensity conflict going on with separatists in the east of the country. 14,000 people have died over the last sort of, you know, since 2014. NATO membership sort of means you're, you know, suddenly is everyone automatic war in Russia. That's not viable. What is viable are economic sanctions. And I think that is something uh, Liz Truss was talking about in the House of Commons this week. And a really interesting move by Britain, clearly working in partnership, perhaps at the prodding of the White House, which is that Liz Truss said that the UK would be prepared to sanction the companies and the individuals who control them, members of the Russian elite, you might call them oligarchs, who control the companies of strategic significance or economic significance. Best not to get into speculating what those companies are. Liz Truss didn't want to, and it's best we don't either. But, but these are, uh, if you like, it would be household name Russian figures and 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 and, and, and uh, household name members of the Russian government. Now it's interesting. You were talking about potentially some U.S. prodding towards the U.K. stance on Russia. Biden's been quite tough on Moscow so far, hasn't he? Saying that the U.S. is ready no matter what happens. Do you think it seems like the U.S. and U.K. have been working closely on the matter in comparison to previous similar incidents? You're absolutely right on the economic side. Um, they've been. You know, the US has, has wanted to be tougher and knows that London is where, which is where, you know, a lot of Russian money and wealth either is or has flown through is where the action is. We've seen some critical remarks, um, uh, in, in, you know, in recent days, um, from American think tanks who've kind of said that actually the UK needs to get on top of the, um, flow of 
corrupt Russian money that's come through London or come into come into the UK. And that's very significant that they're keen to put Britain under pressure to kind of do more or keen to act with Britain to do more. And the situation is made more difficult as several European countries are dependent on gas from Russia, including Finland, Germany and Italy. And the UK receives most of its gas from the North Sea in Norway, so we don't have quite the same problem. But if Russia did use its leverage against these European countries, how would the Europeans expect the UK to respond? We could be in an interesting sort of almost an economic war. And by the way, some of this might happen without any troops moving, moving anywhere, anywhere near Kiev or into, into Ukraine. You, you name them. Germany is obviously the most important. A lot of countries in, in Europe are dependent on, on Russian gas exports. You know, Germany decided to step away from nuclear power, the beginning of Angela Merkel's tenure decision, which is looking not very wide, wide strategically. So everyone's faced with increased gas prices. You know, it's, it's affecting consumers in the UK because it's rippling through significant, you know, significant impact on the cost of living. But yeah, if Russia were to turn off the tap, uh, uh, Germany is dependent on about a third of its energy needs. All this makes countries, Germany in particular, a bit wary about pushing hard on, on, on sanctions and the rest. This could be a very interesting and complex situation. So what's the goal of Boris Johnson's own trip to Kiev yesterday, Dan? Do you think this is likely to be the end of Johnson's intervention or just the beginning of his interest in the conflict? Look, he, he has to be a lot more interested in in, in, in what's going on in Kiev, because he's got so much problems at home. And one thing that is quite interesting we've seen over the last few days is, is Kiev is downplaying the crisis, and the UK is slightly, is slightly, you know, alongside the US, is slightly playing it up. One should be a little bit cynical about these things, because everyone's got their own interests. So, it, it, look, it's self-evident in Britain that, that Boris Johnson needs needs a crisis of some other kind. And I suspect we'll see a lot more uh, intervention and activity in the coming days. Liz Truss was going to go with him, of course, but unfortunately tested positive for COVID. And I'm sure she'll be trying to get out to Kiev at the first opportunity. Uh, uh, ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, is trying is hoping to go to Moscow to meet his counterpart. That would be an, that would be an interesting uh, meeting if that takes place. Britain wants to be really engaged and interested. You know, and it has some additional reasons for doing so because of domestic problems at home. You know, but but as I say, everyone has got their own angle and agenda. Why are the Ukrainians downplaying it? They have to live with this every day in a way. And they want to say, look, you know, our country's not in crisis. Everyone calm down. So you, that's why I say you should be perhaps a little bit cynical. There, you know, there is nevertheless a fundamental underlying problem there. Well, it certainly could be an eventful few weeks. Thank you so much, Dan, as ever, for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that is all from us this week. In exciting news this Saturday, The Guardian is launching a brand new podcast to help you put the trials and tribulations of the week behind you. Called Weekend, the podcast will give you the chance to catch up on some of the best Guardian and Observer pieces you might have missed, read out by talented narrators. Listen to celebrity interviews, lifestyle features and opinions from our most popular columnists, including Marina Hyde and John Crace. So make sure to listen out for that and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Peter Walker and Dan Sabah. The producer is Amelia Janssen and the executive producer was Danielle Stevens. I'm Rowena Mason. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.